Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Uh, today's guest is an editor at This American Life and author of the memoir, Empty, which reveals the story of binge eating and anorexia that dominated her adolescence. Welcome today, Susan Burton. Thank you for Hi. joining us. Thank you for uh, having me. So I was at Barnes and Noble perusing the shelves and I love books that have an enticing cover or title or what have you. And when I saw your book cover and the title empty, it, it jumped out at me because I'm constantly describing my need to want to feel empty. Like I just need to empty out and not fasting or dump out, but I, I'm always using the word empty. And I, and I, as I was going through your book, I see that, for you, the word empty had a kind of a different connotation. Can you talk to us about the title and what that word empty means for you? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, I'll get to describing empty as a state, okay. but I do want to just, I'm, I'm so glad that you were drawn to the combination of title and cover because I want to shout out to the cover artist whose name is Lee Price. And the cover of my book shows a woman in a bathtub surrounded by food as if she's in the middle of a binge and it actually is an oil painting like if you look at the cover like you think it's a photograph but it's actually so this artist lee price she has a history of eating disorders and she makes these she makes this amazing art where she'll like photograph herself she'll recreate the scene of a binge and then she'll photograph herself and then she'll paint uh that photograph so that's what's on the cover of my book empty um uh, as far as what empty meant to me, I mean, it meant so much, right? Like it was a, a physical sensation, like you're describing, like, like not wanting to sort of have too much inside. But I imbued it with so much symbolic meaning, like not having food in my body was the thing that to me opened up possibility, that to me allowed me to take other people in. Uh, that emptiness was the thing that allowed me to get out of bed in the morning and get dressed and, and get out of the house. Um, it was a reaction to years of binging when I'd been stuffed and too full. And my, uh, you know, ultimately like really perilous and detrimental solution to that binging was to try to be empty. When we, when you discuss binging, uh, I think there's so many people who are still confused as to what that is because we live in such a culture of stuffing our faces. There's, you know, the hot dog eating contest. There, there are restaurants that are like, can you eat this? If you eat this 28 ounce, you know, uh, porterhouse steak, we'll, we'll give you another one on the house. Uh, so it, it seems very uh, normal to, to eat a lot of food and consume a lot at one time. How are you defining binge eating? That's a great question because I do think there's, there's a lot of confusion about what it is. And, and the things you described are binging, right? Like a hot dog eating contest that is binging on food. Uh, but binge eating disorder, um, as I experienced it, it's eating more food than one would typically eat at once, um, feeling as if you have no control uh, when you're doing it, feeling great shame when you're done, wanting to stop, but not being able to. I experienced it as a compulsion. You know, I would, I would you know, do it, do it in the morning. Uh, I'm not, that's it. That's it. That's the last binge. I'm not, you know, I'm never going to do it again. But, but by the evening, I'd, I'd be doing it again. Um, you know, I think, I, I think there are variations on that, but, uh, the things that primarily differentiate it from like eating a pint of ice cream once in a while when you feel sad, it's the feeling out of control, it's the shame, and it's the wanting to stop but being unable to do so. Thank you for sharing that. And with control being a component of binge eating, what in your life were you trying to control? What felt out of control for you that food uh, felt like the solution? I mean, 
honestly, it's something I'm still trying to puzzle out, but, but I'll tell you how it started. Um, I have more of a handle on, so I'm, I'm 47 now. And, uh, I started binging when I was 16 and, uh, I have more of an understanding of, of sort of how it began. So, uh, I was anorexic in my mid-teens and at the tail end of that, that anorexia morphed into binging, which is some, which is like a really typical trajectory for eating disorders. You know, you restrict, you starve yourself, like your, your body wants food. <laughs> your, your body is going to take it in. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know this at the time. Um, and I felt uh, a lot of shame and fear that, uh, that this was happening to me. It wasn't just like shame about my body size changing. It was fear of feeling so out of control. When I reflect on it now, um, I mean, I see that I was eating to handle a lot of feelings I didn't want to feel. So, for example, during my adolescence, um, any time there was sort of like a, like I had this best friend, uh, Jules, and I wanted to be so close to her. And I always felt like I wanted to be closer to her than she wanted to be close to me. But it would be the kind of thing where like, I'd, you know, come home after a night out with Jules and I'd feel like we hadn't sort of uh, bonded <laughs> in the way that I would have wanted to. And I would open the freezer and I would take out a pint of ice cream and I would just start sort of tearing around the kitchen. And, and in my mind, like the link wasn't like, a to B, the way I'm describing it now, it was just sort of like automatic. Like that's where I went when I entered the house. That's where I went was to the kitchen. So it was often to deal with feelings of longing or yearning. Um, but, you know, a whole range of other things too. Like there was a lot of kind of uh, anger was something I had a hard time expressing. And there was a lot of sort of aggression in, in the act of binging itself. You, you talk about how feelings of uh, you're trying to avoid longing and, and yearning and kind of suppressing uh, those emotions. But yet the food brought up uh, shame and, uh, and fear for you. Why was shame and fear so comfortable for you? Why, why was that more? It seemed more reasonable than uh, the longing and yearning and sitting with that. I mean, that's such a good question. I mean, so a couple things come to mind. One, like the cycle of, of binging, it like becomes so familiar, right? It becomes so habituated. I'm not going to binge. I'm not going to binge. I'm binging. Ugh, I finished. Like, I, I hate myself, but I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to do it again. Like it's, you know, we start from zero, like square one, all possibility beginning now. So it's, so it's, it exists in a familiar cycle and those feelings of, uh, you know, of shame and fear. It's like they're self-inflicted, right? Like it was something I was doing to myself and it was easier to sort of feel that than to feel like the, you know, like the sadness and pain that, that come from human relationships where you kind of, you can't control the other person. Like you, you, you can't control what goes on. And that's the really tricky stuff to navigate. You know, it's sort of easier to be like, it's all my fault. I hate myself than to, uh, to deal with the pain of like, of, of maybe I want more from this person than this person wants from me. How have you been able to recognize your feelings of sadness and how, how, how does that show up for you in your, in your body? And, and what are signs that where you go, Oh, I think there's some sadness. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's still something I, I work on. So, um, you know, I love, uh, I love crying because for years it wasn't something I could do much of, um, you know, after the binging ended, right. So I became empty. I, I became anorexic and sort of remained, um, remained that way for decades. Like, like not, uh, you know, not so perilously thin that I was ever hospitalized, but I used not eating to manage my emotions um, in in the same way I'd used binging to manage my emotions, even though the behavior looked different, it had the same function. And so um, I was always, so sadness is something that's like just kind of coming up. I think I'm having trouble answering this question because um, 
it's a, I'm at a stage where like, I'm so, I'm so hungry for feeling like I, I, uh, I, if, if I, if, if during this interview, like <laughs> I start to feel teary or an emotion bubbles up, like I will be so pleased. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, I'm, I guess, yeah, maybe that's my answer to this question is like, now I'm at the stage where it's, I, I fear the absence of emotion. I fear like emotional flatness. I fear because that's what I fear, like kind of going back to. Uh, I feel, I fear emotional flatness. It, it's so true. I, I find in my moments when I feel lonely or sadness, uh, listening to music from my childhood stirs up so many emotions for me. And I see you smiling and nodding your head. Have you had a similar experience with music or art or anything that kind of any nostalgic, uh, uh, memories? Oh, for sure. Music, music in particular is so important to me that way. I mean, you know, anytime Spotify is like serving me up a playlist, like that's, you know, for instance, like, like for yesterday morning, I was going to go for a run or two mornings ago, I was going to go for a run and I opened it up and like Spotify had some new, maybe it was just visually, like it, it looked a little different, but it was like, here's your, you know, here's your eighties mix. Here's your nineties mix. Here's your two thousands mix. And I was like, oh, what do they think my nineties mix is? And I opened it up and I was just like, oh my God, I'm tying up my shoes. Like I'm leaving the house right now. Like I'm going for a run and it does feel so good. I feel so grateful that, um, that music was important to me as an adolescent because I, it generates still so much pleasure and feeling for me today. And not, not just those songs, but like, but other songs like, yeah, music is deeply important to me. You know, it's fascinating is it, it makes me think about meditation because you talked about how you fear the absence of feeling. And I, it's, I find it ironic as I'm thinking about that. I go to meditation to kind of empty out the emotions to kind of empty out the feelings, but then a new, uh, wave of emotions and feelings start to stir up, but they're not as scary or overwhelming as perhaps what I was experiencing before. Have you incorporated meditation into your, your practice of feeling more or managing emotions? I haven't, but I want you to tell me more about that because it's, it's so funny. I was having a conversation just a couple of weeks ago with somebody who, um, she was using meditation to manage insomnia. And I was really curious about that too. But the thing you just said about going in with one feeling and then like going through this process of emptying, but then a new feeling rising up, tell me more about that. So I, when I describe uh, meditation to people, I describe it as a picture of snow globe uh, because I, often meditation is um, uh, promoted as, you know, you're going to find calmness and stillness and joy and whatever. But that not initially, what happens is as we're moving through our day, uh, managing the kids, managing work, we're shaking up the snow globe. So that's, that's adrenaline, cortisol, all, all these things are, are building up and getting whirled around all these emotions are whirling around. And so when we initially sit to meditate, it takes a while for the snow to, to settle at the bottom. And so when we sit with ourselves for the first time, you know, in the day, we don't, when we don't feel that initial calm, we kind of panic and then people go, I can't meditate. So you'll find that most people can't sit with themselves for more than a minute or two. But if you've been shaking up the snow globe all day, it can take a while for things to settle at the bottom. And then what happens once the emotion settles down, once the adrenaline and the fight or flight and all that stuff uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, kicks in or, or you know, uh, dissipates, the things that we've been trying to suppress, the anger, the, the wanting, the, the loathing, all that stuff starts to surface, right? And because we, we were distracting ourselves with the busyness, that's why we were shaking the globe so much, all that stuff comes up. And if we can sit with it long enough, then that too starts to settle at the bottom of the snow globe. And then we have, uh, if that's when the peace, the serenity, the calmness, and all those things start to show up. And then there's this, uh, this, this vitality that kicks in, this, uh, this, this uh, blood flow that starts to rush throughout your body. 
Um, and it, it, it doesn't always happen. It's kind of like a runner's high, right? Yeah. You don't always get the runner's high. Sometimes you get it in the first mile. Sometimes you got to run 10 miles. Same thing with meditation. So we have to be wary of not chasing that nirvana, which people are known to do that, you know, meditation can be addictive because of that. I, sometimes I, I um, express it as feel like an astronaut floating through through space. I don't always get there. But when you get there, you're like, oh, my God, like this is in, it's like a bunch of opiates being released uh, and dopamine just being released in my brain. Um, but that's that's so that's such a that's such a really helpful and um and enticing description. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <laughs> you, you know, you work for the meditation authority or but but like I but I uh it's really appealing to me. Um I, I mean a, a couple things come to mind, like that meditation well, first of all, that you're not going to feel that like high every time because I've been running for, you know, more than 30 years. And, and that's something I understand about running now. Like sometimes I'm going to have that feeling, sometimes I'm not. But, uh, but I think that if I didn't have, if I began a practice of, med began a meditation practice and I didn't have that feeling all the time, I might feel like, oh, you know, I'm doing it wrong or I'm not working or this isn't a good fit. It, so, so that's really helpful to hear. And then you are sort of forced to sit with feelings. And, uh, and that's really helpful. Sometimes I feel like the phrase sit with feelings. Sometimes I feel like I'm sitting on the feelings, like I need to do something with them, right? But like meditation, like you, you, there's nothing to do with them, but sit with them. So that's really great. But the last thing I'll say about meditation is um, I did try mindfulness meditation in my mid thirties when I was having trouble with anxiety. And, um, at the very first class, the teacher, you know, asked us to just close our eyes and just, you know, monitor the thoughts that came in our head, just notice the thoughts. So this is like totally my first experience, right. With like any, any kind of meditation. And, uh, it was almost like a cartoon character thing where my eyes popped open wide in horror because like, you know, 95% of the thoughts in my head were about food. And, um, and at that point in my life, like I, I, I knew I was preoccupied with food, but I hadn't realized like, like it took up this much space and it was really unsettling. And it, it, it's sort of one of the key moments in my adulthood where something kind of shook me a little bit. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't address it in the way that you know, I, I wish I had right then, but it was one of those moments where I was like, this is really a problem. Anyway, yeah. and I didn't do well at meditation. I, I, I didn't, it, it wasn't a success for me then, but yeah. And, and what's beautiful that, you know, there's so many different ways to practice it. Um, some people find different practices uh, more effective for them. And I'm always switching up my practice. Um, I like to use meditation uh, to start my day typically. But sometimes I also love to use it as a transition between things. Like after this podcast, I'm going to sit and meditate for a few minutes. Yeah. After I leave a meeting, after I leave work, uh, you know, when I, uh, you know, land and, uh, you know, get off a plane and arrive at the hotel, you know, to use it as a transition to be like, all right, I, I feel cool, but maybe there are some things that I'm unaware of because I've been shaking the globe up so much. So we don't always, we don't have to sit with ourselves for 20 minutes or an hour, even just these minor, these small check-ins throughout the day of one minute or 10 exhales. Uh, those are just as effective as, you know, going to a mountaintop for three days and, and fasting and sitting with yourself. That's really helpful too. I mean, I know that they're all like the meditation apps and stuff, um, and and I suppose that one of the things that the apps are enabling a, a person like me to do is is to have these like smaller sorry that that the apps are enabling somebody like me to do is to have kind of like these I don't know create a structure for incorporating meditation into one's life. But it's just, it's really helpful to hear you say that it's something that you can do in small chunks throughout the day. Because of course, as we're sitting here talking, I'm like, oh, I should, I should find a studio. I should take a class and, you know, and, and practice 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But, um, but the idea of getting off this podcast and doing that for a couple minutes sounds great. Um, because as 
you know, I'm, I'm working toward recovery from my eating disorder, but, but the thing I'm still more likely to do when, uh, I finish a stressful situation or I'm having, not that this is stressful, but, but like when I'm, when I'm having trouble transitioning from one thing to another is like going to the kitchen and, you know, like taking out the loaf of bread and slicing a piece and putting it into the toaster. And, you know, even if it's not a binge, like it's, it's not, it's not eating like out of hunger. It's not like sitting and eating a meal. It's not sharing food with somebody else, but it is still absolutely the way that I transition and respond to stress. And it's something that I'm working on, but um, I'd love to have another tool like that. Yeah. At, you know, and one of the things my girlfriend is, and I don't know that you're married, uh, was it 25, 25 years? Uh, let's see. We've been together since we were 20 and we're 47 now and we got married at 29. Wow. So one of the things Michelle, my girlfriend does is, uh, she will place her hands on my chest and just gently press down. Like I'll lay on my back and that is so soothing. So meditation doesn't always have to be this, um, you know, sitting with our legs crossed on some yoga mats and, you know, lighting incense. It could also just be laying on your back, which your friend who talked about insomnia, there's a yeah. uh, yoga for sleep called yoga nidra, which uh, allows you to do kind of a body scan before you go to bed at night. And it's so effective and so helpful in helping me sleep and just kind of empty out uh, the thoughts. So yeah, you definitely, uh, there's, there's nighttime meditation, but there's also different types of morning meditation. Cool. If, if I do want to press the little red leave button on the Zoom when we're done, if I press, like, what, what would I do? Like, what would I do? Like, let's say, like, I just wanted to try this. Like, like what, what would I do? Yeah. So all, all, I, all, all you would do is, because right now you're sitting in a chair, I would just sit at the very edge of your chair, close your eyes, place your hands in your lap, and take, count 10 exhales. Uh-huh. And, okay. And then that's it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, just to start off with. And you, you'll be surprised at how much deeper your 10th exhale is versus your first exhale. Uh-huh. Okay. And just that, and just that, you know, short amount of time. Okay. All right. And, I'm and in. That's it. Yeah. You're in. All right. Yep. <laughs> I love it. And, you know, and I know that you're in therapy right now. You're talking about still working through the emotions and, and managing things. Are there things that have come up for you in therapy that um, you didn't, you're just now realizing, you're like, I had no idea that that was contributing to the binge eating or the anorexia. Uh, because a lot of times we walk through life thinking we have all the answers. And we're like, yeah. we know, well, I know why this is happening. And then you go, oh my, there's so much more. Has that come yeah. up for you at all? For sure. I mean, in multiple ways. I, I mean, I think when I went into therapy, um, I thought of I thought of my eating disorders as really I mean I knew that they were connected to you know elements of of my history but but I did I did think of them as like really physiological like I was anorexic and then I started binging and it just messed up my relationship with food and I've never had a normal relationship with food but but, but like I thought it was more about kind of like habit and body and maybe even kind of like neuro neurobiology and all those things are in there right but I had less of a sense of um of really looking hard at the at the pieces of my history that had contributed to the eating disorders and to feeling the feelings to feeling kind of like the sadness and anger at uh you know at my parents divorce or at they they had a troubled marriage at feeling those things i mean i think the thing that um two of the things that have emerged from therapy for me are um, less to do with sort of understanding the origins of the eating disorder as understanding how how connected it has been to every piece of my life. So, uh, so being so distracted or preoccupied with food, um, has made me less present with, uh, with people in, in my life and less able to have kind of like the sustaining, uh, relationships that, that I long for, right. That like in a way I'm saying, you know, the binge eating in high school was, you know, meant to address this longing I had in, in this friendship, but like, uh, so it's, 
it's it's had a a real impact on on interpersonal stuff for sure and and that happens in you know in kind of like concrete ways like uh you know, not wanting to order lunch when everybody else in the office is ordering lunch and feeling sort of like outside of things and self-conscious. But, but also just my mind being elsewhere. Um, And then I think the other thing too is, is again about sort of realizing how interconnected all this stuff is. Like when I am more stable in my eating, when I have more ease around food, uh, I feel more stable and at ease, you know, in, in a conversation. Um, so, so, so for instance, knowing that I was going to talk to you at, at 1 PM Eastern time, um, I'd had sort of like a frayed morning and, and I felt sort of fragmented and, and my instinct would have been to cope by, uh, you know, eating, eating something small or, you know, eating, eating in a way that I, I wouldn't, uh, that I would feel was like unimpeachable, but like, I was able to take a step back and be like, I want to be well-nourished and I want to be grounded when I speak to Leo. And, uh, so I made a wholesome, nourishing lunch. And I sat down at the table and I had my blue placemat and, and I had my, my gingham napkin (laughs) and, uh, yeah. And I ate, uh, I ate slowly and appreciated the food and, and like all the things, but all the things that, um, that come very naturally to, to many people, but that are things that I am relearning or even learning for the first time when it comes to eating. I love it. You and I had the same morning. (laughs) Because <laughs> right, because it's ten a.m. here, and yeah. I was like, "All right, I usually would eat breakfast at 10, or, or and I was like, "But the podcast is at 10. so I was like, "I could, you know, squeeze something in because I wanted to be grounded and nourished." But I go, but then I feel kind of sluggish because I just ate, and I would I would have to scarf it down, and then I was like, "I have another meeting right after that. Do like, am I gonna be able to sustain?" And then I was like, but I don't want to feel rushed because then I'll feel rushed through the podcast. Then I go, you know what? I'm just going to meditate. And I, I just yeah. sat and I meditated and I just I just let go. And, you know, I'm not religious, but let God, as, as people say, and said, let's see what happens if, I, if yeah. I don't eat. And, you know, I just like I just want water and let me just settle down and uh, and just take a chance on, you know, I'll be able to eat at noon. It'll be fine. you know. Uh, that kind of deal. But uh, yeah, it's like when your schedule changes and your routine changes, you're like, okay, I usually do this at this time. Cause you know, it, <laughs> it, 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 a whole host of thoughts come up for us. You talked about, you want to feel nourished besides food. How else do you intentionally nourish yourself? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a few ways, uh, writing and reading, uh, have been meaningful to me, uh, you know, since I was, a, since I was a child. So, uh, so writing and reading are, are kind of always a piece of, of what I'm doing. Um, my, my family relationships, uh, with, you know, with my husband, with my two children, um, that's, that's a huge source of, of nourishment to me. Um, and, I do feel really lucky. So I'm an editor at This American Life, and um, and I I I miss my colleagues because we're not all together yet in an office. Though though that is um, that is imminent. It, it will happen soon. But but I feel grateful to be connected to them um, during the day. And even just you know like for instance yesterday. Um, some of us were meant to have a meeting to to choose the reruns that we're going to put on the air in you know August and September, but uh, only two of us showed up for the meeting. There were you know somebody was out and somebody couldn't make it, and the two of us just kind of sat in the Zoom and like got to talking a little bit. And it wasn't about the rerun council; it was just about uh, stuff. And it just felt really good to like be connected to another person who cares deeply about something I care about, which is making radio stories for this American life for, you know, 15 minutes in the middle of the day. So, so that's another way of, of nourishing myself. I guess the last thing I'll say too, is that, um, uh, spending time, um, outdoors, uh, and kind of like noticing the, the change of seasons, whether that is here in New York City or outside of New York City, um, is something that that helps me. Um, 
I think because it's cyclical and because there's kind of like an ebb and flow in, in nature, it, it makes it okay to have sort of an ebb and flow within, within oneself instead of having to be uh, one way all the time, uh, you know, the good way, the right way, the on it way. Like nature has an ebb and flow and so do people. I love that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a part of uh, Sugar and Carbs uh, Anonymous because uh, uh-huh. I have a sugar addiction. My father drank a lot. And so for me, I, I've noticed that, um, you know, my addiction was getting to a place where it's causing pain points in relationships, yeah. physically, mentally, spiritually. And one of the things they talk about in SCAA is when the physical pain, the emotional pain and the financial pain become great enough. That's when people seek out change. What were the physical, were there any physical symptoms that showed up for you with binge eating and anorexia? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, uh, like the the binge eating, um, you know, the binge eating, I did, like looking back on it, there were sort of unexplained um, visits to an endocrinologist in my college years that when I look back on were, were kind of clearly connected to, to metabolically, metabolically what was happening with the binging. But, but the anorexia is, is more, is easier for me to like name some concrete stuff, um, because that was longer lasting, um, and, uh, and, and closer in, in chronology to where we are now. I mean, you know, I, I lost my period for months at a time. Um, I lost my period for a larger span in my early twenties. And then, uh, more sporadically throughout my adulthood, you know, so I wasn't ovulating. Um, something I really only understood in retrospect is that, uh, you know, your heart has to work harder, uh, when you're in a state of starvation and, um, and looking back. So, you know, so like I said, I run and I have a Garmin watch and tracks your heart rate. And I look at runs like right now, like running faster miles and my heart rate is like, is, 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 is pretty low. You know, it's not. And, and I look at back just a few years ago when I was, uh, when I wasn't as well nourished, when I was underweight and my heart rate is so high and running, um, and running slower. And I was always, you know, I was always running. Like, it wasn't like I was like out of shape. Like, like I saw myself as in such good shape, right? Cause I exercised compulsively, but my heart had to work so hard. So, so that's something that's like a little scary in, in retrospect. Um, and, you know, and, uh, during my pregnancies, I had, I had healthy pregnancies. I had healthy babies, but I didn't, um, gain as much weight as, um, as, as it, it was, as it probably would have been good to, I, th- I think, um, I didn't realize how, how disordered my eating was then. I remember going out to lunch with, um, with my aunt during one of my pregnancies. Um, and she said something to me, like what you think is a normal amount of food isn't a normal amount of food. You know what I mean? And it was one of those comments that just stuck with me because, because since I was kind of locked inside the, the eating disorder, part of me wanted to be like, well, no, 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 she doesn't understand. This is the amount of food that's right for me. But part of me was like, oh, wait, that's so true. <laughs> like, uh, what I eat is not normal. You know, it's just one of the comments that, that stuck in my head. You talked earlier about like journaling and and uh, and reading, and I know that Sylvia Plath was uh, somebody who you, that you love to read. Uh, is it uh, the, the when I like think about the story about the bell jar, uh, and then I look at your story. Were there when we look at like uh, you know binge eating or anorexia? There, there's uh, there are correlations between that and suicidality, and we notice Sylvia Plath ended her life. Um, were there moments where you felt the same? No, that, that hasn't been among the things I've struggled with. Um, and, um, and I feel, you know, I feel fortunate, um, in that way. Um, Sylvia Plath's work was, 
important to me on that um, important to me on the level of of reading about uh like a young intelligent woman who had struggled with with mental illness so i identified with it on that level but also a young woman who was just like i you know if you read her teenage journals she was going to be a writer. She wanted to be a writer. She was going to be a writer. And that was something she could be. And, and that um, is a kind of like authentic empowerment, I think, for an adolescent girl, instead of kind of like the, you know, empowerment that's like manufactured and sold. Here was this woman who just, she knew what she wanted to do and she was going to go get it. And obviously she was uh, tormented and didn't get the help she needed. Um, but uh, but so, so that was part of my draw to her for sure. I love that. And, you know, you talked earlier about your husband and, and having two kids. And what type of conversations have you had around food with your kids? I would imagine kids, they go to birthday parties all the time. They have birthday parties. There's so much food around when you have kids. How has been managing that? Is it like a safe where their snacks are in there? Or uh, uh, what's the conversation around food? Yeah, it's a good question to, you know, how, how one navigates this with kids. I mean, so, you know, in, in, in the family I grew up in, like there was a lot of focus on body size and weight. And uh, there was like a famous story we would tell in my family where one time my sister and I were back to school shopping with our grandmother. And this was like, it was the summer I was going into fifth grade. And my sister and I were in the dressing room with our grandmother. And, you know, I was pulling on this plaid kilt and my grandmother like clapped her hands together. And she was like, I'm so glad I have thin grandchildren. And, and we all kind of like laughed about it and made fun of her for saying that. But in a way that was kind of like, you know, the, the, a motto in a way, like everybody in my family, uh, was, you know, what we deem as thin and, and there was an importance placed on that. So when I had kids, um, I knew I wasn't going to, you know, say things like, uh, you know, I'm so glad you're thin. Like, like I went, like they were very sort of like explicit. I knew there were certain messages I just wasn't going to send, but I think what I didn't, um, understand was that there was all kinds of like unconscious stuff that that i was transmitting um and in the years that they they're 13 and 16 now i have two boys they're 13 and 16 and when they were young um you know so like i said i was struggling a lot with anxiety and a lot of that you know because food is my thing a lot of that anxiety played itself out around food so you know i would be scared that something was contaminated i would be scared it had germs i would be scared it wasn't cooked all the way and um and it's impossible that they didn't pick up on that and internalize some of that um but i think it is it is so important for children to see that uh, parents can struggle and be open about it and that they can get help and that you can be working through something as an adult um, and that uh, and that these are things we can talk about. You know, that said, um, I've never sat down with one of my boys and been like, here's what a binge looks like. Like, like they just they're you know, that's not that's not what they want. If, if they wanted that, like then then we would figure out a way to have that conversation. But but to approach them with it, that would be burdening with, you know, them with, with stuff that that they don't need. Well, I'm glad you brought up your, your grandmother, because, uh, you know, a lot of times we think that what we're going through started with us. And usually there's a family history, uh, a tradition, I don't know, uh, or just messaging that's been passed down generation to generation. You know, in your family, part of that messaging was thinness. Uh, to the point you said your grandmother was in a hospital. Uh, and, and tell us about that moment in the hospital where that had an impact on you. Uh, and what was she in the hospital for? So this was actually, she was, she was, she was very ill. She was literally on, uh, her deathbed. Like she was on the bed in which she died, but she, she was at home. She was, she was at home, but she was, she was near the end of her life. Um, she was in her early nineties. Um, and, and I'm not sure, ex I, I think actually we're not even exactly sure what she, what she died of at that point, but she, she'd been, you know, one of those just like 
supremely healthy people until like the very last couple months of her life when, when it was clear she was dying. So um, I she lived in Florida then and I'd gone down to visit her because it did seem like it would probably be the last time um, that I saw her. And I was sitting next to her bed and uh, and she was lying there and she said, oh, how I wish I could get on the scale. You know, I've lost so much weight. I wish I could get on the scale. I want to know how much I weigh. And the thing was like, I, I was 37 then, you know, I still wasn't really, I was still pretty dissociated from what was happening with me with eating. And I understood, I understood that impulse, you know, like I didn't, I didn't judge her for it. I didn't, I don't even think like I wished, I didn't even like now I'm like, I don't want that to be me. That's not a thought that I had then. It was more just like empathy and identification. It wasn't like, like uh, you know, I, I didn't see it as like a, a positive thing. But, um, and then the other, the other piece of that scene, like is in memory, is that um, my grandmother was a wonderful cook. Like there was this weird combination, or maybe not so weird. I think it's actually a pretty common combination of like vigilance and pleasure um, around food in, in our family. So I had like a stack of her cookbooks next to me and they were all, you know, marked up with like notes on recipes she'd made over the years. And, you know, when I was going through and like asking her, you know, I was asking her questions about our family history, but I was also asking her questions about, you know, this like loaf of bread in the James Beard cookbook. And so even as she's sitting there saying she wishes she could get on the scale to see the number, like we're also talking about baking, (laughs) you know, it was, it was like the way that both things are intertwined that kind of like, as you say, tells the story, like these things have histories and they started, you know, before we came into the world. Was that, was your, was that your grandmother on your dad's side or your mom's side? On my mom's side. And, and I ask that because, you know, it seems like from the book that your father had uh, very strong opinions about image uh, in regards to your mom. And so did you find that his grandmother was uh, at, at a similar mindset of, of thinness or in shapeness? Or what do you think? Uh, can you talk to us about how he per- how you perceived your dad growing up in his relationship with your mom and uh, maybe the history of that? Yeah. So that's, that's really, it's really interesting to think about. So my father's mother died when he was still in college. So I never knew her. Um, but I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. And I'm glad you picked up on my father's, uh, just role in, in my own story because, um, lots of times people only want to talk about the mother, (laughs) like not just in, not just in my own story of an eating disorder, but in any eating disorder like stuff. There's so much like mother blaming or, you know, your mother did this. So you did that. And, and obviously like the, and, and both parents have a role and in my, so, so my parents got divorced when I was 13 and, and then my mother had physical custody and I lived with my mother. But up until that point, I lived with both parents and, um, my father was very image, um, conscious in ways that both like were not about body. So for example, like we weren't allowed to wear jeans and I wasn't allowed to get my ears pierced. And they were like things that didn't totally make sense. Like it wasn't like we were an especially like religious family or like politically conservative family. It was almost like, like a family from another time. Like it was formal and, and it just felt weird. Right. And um, like I got, I was able to get one pair of jeans. It was in fifth grade. It was 1984. It was thriller. And it was a, it was a school play about Michael Jackson. And I was allowed to get a a pair of jeans to play a fan in, in the play about Michael Jackson. I was a fan and they were Lee jeans and they were pinstriped. And my mother said that my father would like the pinstripe jeans because they looked like business suit pants. Okay. So, so there was that kind of thing, but, but then there's the stuff that's more about body. Um, and my father was a very serious amateur athlete and he was, uh, he was a, a you know, marathoner and a triathlete and he was very conscious of what he ate. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a story that stands out to me, uh, a story in which my, my father commented on my mother. Um, I heard them, uh, I heard him berating her one morning. Um, I had a, I was 13. I had a friend sleeping over and we woke up and, and I heard my parents across the hall 
And my father said to my mother, you're disgusting. You disgust me. And then he left. And it was a really, you know, troubling thing to hear. And my father could have meant all kinds of things by that. But in my mind, he meant he was disgusted by my mother's body. Um, and in particular, by her stomach. Now, I'm making a lot of leaps here, right? Um, but, but I think, and, and, and some of those leaps have to do with the way that my mother talked about her own body, you know, and, uh, and the ideas that I already had about bodies at age 13. Um, but it's all enmeshed, right? It's, it's, it's thinking that my father could be disgusted by somebody's body. It's knowing that my mother has at times, you know, uh, express disgust about her own body. It's like being 13 and, and having feelings, um, of, uh, I think sort of dissociation from my pubescent body. Um, so that's not a very clean, (laughs) clear answer to your question, but, but that's, that's some of the stuff that comes up for me. Well, you know, what, what I'm hearing is, you know, the power of curiosity because, I think a lot of times what often happens in relationships is that we overhear something or something is said to us. And instead of inquiring more or asking questions about what we think we've heard or our perception of it, we kind of just assume that our perception of it uh, is what it is. And then we continue moving forward uh, based on those assumptions. Uh, and so one of the things that, you know, cause I'm in therapy too, and group therapy that I try to be more intentional about is getting specific about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what does it mean when you say you're disgusted with me? What does it mm-hmm. mean when you say, um, where have you been? You know, what does it mean when you say I hate you or I love you? Like getting specific details as to what that person thinks uh, they're saying so that I'm not going off my own, uh, interpretation of it. And it's challenging. Mm-hmm. It's so challenging to have those conversations because it's, it's not hard. And I, I just want to go to the easy thing, like, you know, putting bread in a toaster and I'll just yeah. eat that versus, Hey, let's sit down and have a conversation about what you said that, uh, has a, an effect on me. Yeah. 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 It's, it is, it's really hard to, to ask those direct questions, to be sensitive when asking those questions, to stay in it, um, you know, to let the other person, you know, who's, who's struggling to answer that question, to give them space to, you know, to, to, to be defensive or to be, to to be whatever they need to be so that you can both, (laughs) so that you can both be in it together. Susan Burton, is there anything that we haven't talked about in regards to anorexia or binge eating or your story that you feel would be helpful to anybody out there struggling with either or? Yeah, I mean, I guess there are two things that I, I that I want to say. The first is actually more of a selfish thing than a selfless thing. The selfish thing is I do, you know, but I, I, I worry that in this conversation I was... Uh, I was overwhelmingly critical of my parents and, and my parents, um, you know, they, they made me who I am. They made me, uh, a person who, uh, is able to love and do meaningful work. And, and they are, are both really important people to me. Um, so I, I just like want to be clear about that. But as far as what I would say to somebody struggling with this stuff, Um, you know, I'm speaking from personal experience here, but like nothing changed for me until, uh, until I sought therapy and still until I started working on this with another person, like eating disorders are really isolating. They happen in secret. You know, a lot of times, uh, we tell ourselves like, oh, it's not a real eating disorder or it's not a big deal. If it's something that's preoccupying or troubling you, um, it, 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 it is a big deal and, and it is worth getting help for. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's, that's just been so critical for me is that working through this with another has, has been really profound. And then last question I ask this of all my guests, uh, as always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them, Susan? that you are loved 
and that you can find meaning and that there is hope um, and not to diminish like anything you are feeling or struggling with right now. But honestly, even as I'm saying it, um, it feels scary to me because it feels um, if I feel like the responsibility, like to say like the exact right thing. And, and maybe that's the wrong, uh, you know, my head is spinning. Like, what can I say? What can I say to, to help this person or to stop this person from, um, from taking this action? Um, and in a way, I almost want to ask you, like, if I'm in that situation, like what, and maybe you and maybe you meant this question to be sort of like lighthearted and desert island <laughs> like i'm being way too like earnest and sincere but like what like what would you say you know sometimes saying nothing um is a response I, i've uh-huh. had friends contact me and uh, who were on the on that precipice and often just sitting there just saying i'll, I'll sit here with you uh yeah and 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 listen to you um you know let me know if you need more than that yeah and um and oftentimes that's all we wanted is to to feel like somebody is there with us um uh, you know in the darkness and then at some point they start to open up and start sharing more of what's going on and it's just getting them to talk you know first i I, you know if i could do a three-step the first step is just saying, hey, um, I'm here to sit with you and, and listen. And then the second step is as they start talking, keep them talking. Tell me more uh-huh. about that. What does that feel like for you? What was that experience? Uh, you know, just just keeping them talking. It's like a hostage negotiation. The longer you keep them talking, then uh, the more you build rapport and establish and then uh, the more they start to, you know, settle down, it's like that, that snow globe all over again, the conversation. Yeah. And then the third step is if, uh, if, if there needs to be any action taken, like, uh, maybe calling 911 or making sure that, um, you know, you're removing any, um, threatening objects, any harmful objects out of their home, uh, doing that. But, you know, that's only after you've sat with them for a while, you've listened to them for a while. And then, you know, finding out what they want to do uh, next. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's but sitting there, just being there. It's kind of like you remember in middle school when you, you would talk to your friends on the phone. Uh, and I'm sure yeah. this is what you wanted from your friend, that, that longing, where you were just on the phone for hours and you spent most of that time saying nothing. Yeah. Uh, at least that was my experience. You know, you both be watching a show. And occasionally, you know, you'd both laugh or not laugh, but you're just on a phone watching a show and there's not much conversation. And that's all we want is just somebody to be on the other end of the line. I love that you said that because when you started speaking, like that is literally the visual in my head is you on one phone and the friend on the other phone. And then like, as you kept talking, then the scene shifted for me and you guys were in the same room. But like when it began, there were two curly corded phones, yeah. <laughs> like one on one person's ear and one on the other. Yeah. Uh, Susan Burton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Susan Burton. Thank you, Leo.